For full transcripts, translations, content notes, and resources from this episode, follow along with us on our show notes at queensmemory.org. This is the Queen's Memory Podcast, a selection of personal histories from the borough of Queens in New York City. This podcast comes to you from the Queen's Memory Project, based in Jamaica, Queens, at the Queen's Central Library. I'm Natalie Milbrook, Director of Queen's Memory, where we record and preserve contemporary history across the borough. We grow our archives by collecting oral histories, photos, and mementos shared with us by community members. Local volunteers who train with Queen's Memory staff facilitate and record our oral history interviews. We feature oral histories from our archives so we can reflect on and engage with the histories we listen to and tell one another. How do we carry each other's stories? What shapes our personal and family histories? How did we get to the neighborhoods where we live? And where are we in relation to each other's histories? As part of New York City, Queens has long been a point of entry to the United States. Thinking about the borough in this way, we searched through our archives to gather stories of migration for this first season of the Queen's Memory Podcast. These stories cross continents and move through decades of the past century. We share these oral histories to reflect on the histories of this borough, of this country, and of ourselves. I think nearly I went to 10 states. I didn't know anything about economy. I just wanted to own a bar. My father meets a guy that needed $8,000. He says, I give you my house. I couldn't come out to my parents. So I told my parents I want to move out. I wanted to get more involved in what was happening in the immigrant community. I moved to Queens to be closer to the work. As a consultant, I had to travel a lot. During that period, my home is really just a suitcase. We're thinking about residence in this sixth episode and the connections we form with the places we inhabit. This includes processes of establishing what U.S. immigration law refers to as permanent residency, involving family or employer sponsorship, applications, interviews, fees, and numerous other requirements. We also thought about the many experiences and moments that become part of living and staying in a place. While we listen, We'll consider what shapes our relationships to the apartments, houses, and neighborhoods where we live. Let's listen. Since you came to America, have you always lived in Queens or did you live someone else? Someplace else? Okay, I landed in um, New York in JFK, December 1974, Mm -hmm. and uh, I had little money. My problem was to have a shelter, job, and school for the children. Okay. They were bef- less than the age of eight, all the five. Oh, wow. So the younger <laughs> one was one year and the eldest one was eight years. So I got a job because I have background as working with my own hands also mechanic. So I got a job. Mm-hmm. I got an apartment in uh, Hillside, Jamaica, New York. Okay. I started working as a foreign car mechanic there. And I up, tried to apply everywhere. I think nearly I went to 10 states to appear for the 
test. And out of those tests, the first one I got was in Baltimore. So I asked them a day off. I told them I want to go for the interview tomorrow. So they told me, take your toolbox with you, don't come tomorrow. So, you know, (laughs) and uh, then uh, we moved. I rented a Uh U-Haul and we all went to uh, Baltimore. Baltimore. That was toll collector on that Francis Scott Key Bridge. So I stayed as a toll collector for uh, around three months. I told them, this is not my field. Uh, My basic is mechanic and um, heavy equipment mechanic also. So they transferred me to the harbor tunnel to take care of those heavy equipment. So I stayed there for around uh, four or five months. When I got a call from the post office, I took a test in New York before I went to um, Baltimore. So they called me that you are hired. So I came back to New York. So you were in Baltimore less than a year? Less than a year, yes. Okay. When you came back to New York, did you come to Queens? I came to Queens. And I rented a house in uh, Corona, mm-hmm. and I stayed there one year. Then I bought a house in 1978, December 1978, and I'm still living in the same house. Very good. To start off this episode, we listen to Jakir Baines recount memories of moving between states in search of work, later deciding to purchase a house in 1978. In this first collection of oral histories, we'll hear different stories of finding places to live in Queens. We're continuing this collection with Tony O'Reilly, Antonina Kuchiara, and Mohamed Kiwamin. In the first oral history, Tony O'Reilly mentions purchasing a bar in the mid-1970s during a recession in the city. We'll mention for context that by 1975, the city of New York nearly declared bankruptcy after years of fiscal crisis. The rezoning measures and cuts to public services implemented by the city government after the financial crisis were met with opposition by labor and community organizers. The circumstances of this financial crisis and the repercussions of actions taken to quell it continue to have wide-ranging political and economic impacts. Let's listen closer. So your family now, you, you, you're here, you're married, you settled down in, in Flushing? In uh, Jackson Heights. Jackson Heights first, Yeah, right? Jackson Heights. Oh, very near, nice. Near Roosevelt Avenue. And, and... And that was, a, I, was, I became a super of a small building there. I didn't know how to drive a nail straight, but I was super of the building. And he was willing <laughs> to take on the job. <laughs> Took on the job, but it came with a free apartment, yeah, so I was all was in fair. for that. Sure, so, yeah. sure, mm-hmm. sure. So and ch- then, children? Two children, a boy and a girl. Uh, pretty early on in the marriage, and uh, that's uh, they're in their early forties now, and they have their own children. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, and I see. Not long after you arrived in New York, you wound up buying a bar. Yeah, well, um, we, um, yeah, I, I picked a really bad time. There was a recession on in the uh, in the mid seventies, mm-hmm. the worst recession New York has ever seen. So I got an opportunity with very little money to get involved and I had to pay off this place in notes. I put it down as one of the biggest mistakes of my life, but I didn't know anything about economy. I I just wanted to own a bar. I didn't care what it was or where it was or how it was or how much it was going to be. I thought I was going to make a whole lot of money. 
it was my first um, uh, shock of reality <laughs> to say don't buy a bar in a recession you know but I can understand you you're wanting to because this is this was your expertise. This was my expertise. You knew how to be a bartender, and I know you knew how to run a bar. I did. You know, did. so yeah. that makes sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and the yeah. price was better during the recession. Price sure. was good during the recession. I couldn't believe I could get into it so so cheap, and I thought. Okay. But uh, I learned. I realized uh, the first week that oh. I hadn't made it big mistake the first week yeah. Tony the first week oh my yeah. god it was a shock reality yeah yeah Ooh, okay yeah. how long did, and, you, uh, did you keep uh, it and I kept it for um, two years and I managed to sell it and get out losing about 15 to 20 thousand dollars and that was and I felt like well, that was a lot of money in the, in in the 70s sure yeah. it was and I remember feeling you know that I was so relieved that I didn't lose everything you know sure yeah and then from there, from there, then I had we had, we actually um, bought a house. Okay. Yeah, and it came about through my brother-in-law, my my wife's brother, and he um, he wanted to sell that house and move out to Long Island, and he he worked out something with his sister. We had no money at the time we bought the house, but he. He put it in like he was selling it for thirty-five thousand, and he was. We were only giving him thirty. We gave him a check for five thousand with no money in the account, and he just held on to it. And he tore it up later when the closing was done, and we just went straight into this house for thirty thousand, and started paying a mortgage. Lovely little house. I loved it. It was great. And uh, <coughs> we lived there for about um, maybe six, seven years. Yeah. Is that also Jackson Heights? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, moved on from there. <laughs> Can you briefly describe what you remember life was like in Italy prior to your immigration? Uh, I had a happy, uh, we were happy, a happy home. I was raised um, well, you know, we had everything we needed, uh, except that my mother was always sick. Because she uh, she was um, she had depression over her mother that she was in America, she was missing a mother. That's why we came to the United States because my mother was longing for her mom, because my grandmother was American born, she was American born in Nashville. My father came to that conclusion that because, you know, she was sickly and always my mother, my mother, my mother, we we came to the United States. My grandparents then decided to move to New Jersey. So as we had, we had them right across the street, she says, oh, you know, New Jersey is nice, you know, let's build a house there. So my, mom, so my mother got a little upset again. Being that my grandparents were moving to New Jersey, my mother, my father says, we're not staying here, there's nobody here. So he found a place for us to be, go to Ridgewood. We went to, uh, he rented an apartment in Ridgewood. Um, six rooms, you know, you know. So we we moved. From there, we didn't stay long. Maybe I don't know, six months. So we moved to Ridgewood. All Italians, coffee shops, fruits. So we thought we were back in Italy. Restaurants, pizzerias. We thought, oh, this is nice. When we moved to uh, Ridgewood, 
my father thought, you know, uh, this apartment skin a little small being that the baby was born, an American baby. So the room was then, we, there was four girls and a boy and my mother and father. So a lot of kids. So my father says, oh, we got to buy a house being that they, they saved some money and some money they had from, um, from Italy coming in because we had one, one uh, house that was rented and one was empty. So they, my father says, I'm looking for a home. We've got to look for a home. We're getting too, too uh, you know, close over here. Not enough room for everybody. One night he goes to a coffee shop and, and meets a guy that needed $8,000. And my father, he was asking people, do you have $1,000, $1,000? My father says, what do you need this money for? He says, I got to bet it on a horse. My father says, you got to bet it on a horse. He says, yeah. He says, well, he says, I don't even know you. But I, he, says, I, he says, you know what? I give you my house. He says, I have a house. I'm going to sell it. But I need the money from, like, now. He says, what house? And so he's, my, that took my father to sell this house. He says, you want this house? You got to give me $1,000. My father, the next day, calls him up, gets my mother, says, no, it was eight, the guy asked for $8,500. So my mother said, and my mother said to my father, go get the money, go give the guy the money, go look to the lawyer, let's get this house for 8500 My father being always a little bit, uh, you know, he goes there and says, listen, I give you 8000 forget about the $500, I give you 1000 in cash. My mother says, you're going to lose that house for $500. Give the guy the money. Give the guy the money. He says, oh, no. Let's make the deal at the lawyer's office. So my father got this house for $8,000. But then we fixed it. Uh, you know, always doing things around my father. Uh, um, we fixed it because there was no heat, no kitchen. It was the, just the walls. So we put another, let's say, another $20,000 in it. But we had a beautiful home. It was a three-family home. We are all there, we are like eight rooms. Well, we, of course, we all each had their own bedroom. And I shared with my sister, being the oldest, but they, the other ones had their own room. My brother wanted his own room. We had a basement, family came over, and that was a highlight of the first house, that he bought the first house in the, in the United States. That was the highlight. After I think my father, after he had that house, he, he, he was okay staying in the United States because it was his own, not that he had to live in you know, apartments here, an apartment, because over there we landed, we, uh, we had our own houses. In Italy, it was, there was a earthquake. And the house that I was, one is sold. The other one that was empty and is still empty got cracked. It was, so my uncle from Italy says, oh, he called my father, Rosario, the house is all cracked and it's a lot of work. That's the house we lived in when we were little. He says, it needs a lot of work. What are we going to do? Says, my father says, listen, I have a house here. I, you know, I'm not going to come and live there anymore. I'm over here. I'm good. You know, the kids are in school. Everything is good. We're staying here. Maybe the first time I heard my father was staying here. That was it. But he says the house, being that it's our house from when we were kids, mommy's house, grandpa's house, you know what? You keep it. My father gave his house to his brother, gave, with nothing written, no papers, and this house is over there. He gave it to my aunt and uncle. 
So when I went there back 40 years ago after, like from the conversation I started before, my aunt, the first question that I went there with my husband as an adult, first question, my aunt says, why are you here for? For financial reason? You want the South back? I said, no. No, I don't want the South house back. I said, because my father would roll on his grave if I would say, give me the house back. So the house is there and it's still there and everybody's content. And that's it. My family migrated to the U.S. Um, in 96. I lived in Farakali for about 10 years, mm -hmm. 2004, beginning of 2005. I was really struggling with being gay. I, wa I wanted to date and I wanted to like um, just have like relationships and you know I would come to Queens and I would hang out and socialize and you know, meet people that are gay who are still in the closet, very much closet, mm -hmm. closeted. You know, I met my friend Steven, who was like one of my first gay mm -hmm. friends, and we actually met online on AOL mm -hmm. okay. in one of those infamous <laughs> chat rooms. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> we were like, um, I was said, I was saying to him, I was like, you know, where do you go? Where do you go hang out? And let's go. Um, so he was a little bit older. He's like maybe three or four years older than me. Um, so he would, he would say, well, let's go here and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, but I'm not 21. I can't get into these places. Um, but eventually, you know, we, he was the one that introduced me to like gay places in Queens. And this um, is the early 2000s? This was like 2000, 2004, 2003, yeah, 2004. Yeah, early, early 2000. Early, yeah, yeah, very early. Yeah. Ancient history now. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, um, and we would go and mm -hmm. there would be a like gay nightlife. Um, and then I would just take myself back to Farakaway <laughs> and realizing that, wow, like I have to leave my home, I have to leave my community to really yeah. be myself, um, or at least feel safe doing mm -hmm. it. I, I realized um, I couldn't come out to my parents, and, and that's because I didn't know how to. Um, I wanted to, but I wasn't strong enough, and I wasn't um, mentally ready to sort of uh, be disowned. So I told my parents I want to move out. And I said, I want to be independent. Um, I'm going to start looking for an apartment. Mm -hmm. So, you know, um, at the time I was working full time and I was making decent money. Um, and I thought I could afford an apartment. And I realized I could. I just wouldn't have any food and electricity. <laughs> uh, <laughs> just the same thing in every interview. Yeah, right? <laughs> every New Yorker. Yeah. But I'm like, uh, at least I'll have an apartment and I can say I live alone, but what kind of life would that be? Um, so I remember my dad saying to me, um, all right, let's figure this out. You know, we've been living here. We've saved some money. You have saved money. You're working. Uh, instead of you moving out, let's get a house. I'm like, a house? Who's going to take care of that? Um, so he's like, you are. You're going to live in it. And, you know, when your siblings get older and your sisters graduate, um, they could come visit and spend the summer with you. And I'm like, oh, this is starting to sound kind of nice. Okay. Um, so we started, like, we contacted a few uh, real estate uh, agencies that were in Richmond Hill. Um, I wanted to be close to my job. Now we... That's where your parents were living at this point? My parents were in Farakaway. Okay. Yeah, we were still also living okay, in Farakaway. Okay, yeah. Okay. So this was the early 2005, like really early 2005. 
Um, and I said to them, I, I wanted to be close to Richmond Hill. One, because that's my community. I mm-hmm. feel, you know, it's my Guyanese, Trinidadian, it's my Caribbean community. Um, but also close to my job. And I was like, I would save an hour mm-hmm. commute. My, my commute would be 10 minutes to my mm-hmm. job. Um, and that, you know, that, who, who wouldn't want a 10 minute, a 10 minute commute, right? So we actually, uh, we actually ended up finding a house, um, right here in South Ozone Park. Mm-hmm. Uh, we purchased that house together. Um, and I've been living in Richmond Hill since May of 2005. Hmm. Um, so event, so since from then to now, Richmond Hill has really transformed. Tell us um, about that. Yeah. yeah, it has really transformed. I was able to, coming, living in Richmond Hill, I was able to sort of um, be integrated back into my culture, mm-hmm. uh, be integrated back into familiarity from back home, um, and, you know, through food, through the music, mm-hmm. uh, through nightlife, mm-hmm. and all of these things that mm-hmm. were so, um, was so significant to my upbringing in Guyana, I was now being reintroduced to all of it again. After hearing Mohammed Kiwamin talk about connecting with community in Richmond Hill, we'll move to the second collection of clips on different senses of home. In the following oral history clips, we'll hear Luna Ranjit and Ying Zhou reflect on their relationships to their places of residence and how those relate to their conceptions of home. What have we called the different places we've lived? And have all of them been home? What specific circumstances, from political environments to family life, shape our idea of home? I grew up in Kathmandu. I left all of that and came to Iowa uh, for my undergrad, which was sort of pretty much the opposite. I used to say that I kept going until I couldn't go any further (laughs) before turning back. So it was sort of the the opposite end of the globe in uh, Grinnell, Iowa. From then, like, I felt that I didn't want to be in a small town anymore, and so came to the East Coast and went to Washington, D.C. For two years, I supported Um, some really cutting-edge social justice work that was happening at the time. And and I saw the parallel between what I had seen back home and what I had, why I wanted to go into international development as a way of um, social justice in Nepal or in other poorer countries that it was needed and and the work was happening here in the U.S. as well. They saw the... um, income disparity, I saw the racial injustice, um, the the gender inequality that was happening right here in the U.S. And so uh, that shifted my framework. And I was also um, in, I was in D.C. from 2000 to 2002. And so when September 11, 2001 happened and there was the attacks in New York and DC, and then um, and then the backlash that happened against brown community. I wanted to get more involved in what was happening in the U.S. and what was happening in the immigrant community, and especially South Asian community. That interest sort of brought me to New York after my grad school. Do you have any 
like special memory of um, being in Queens and you know you said you were being a resource for the community just showing up mm-hmm. so early on um, yeah, I think people just started talking to me about like things that were going on and before I actually um, moved to Queens I, I moved to Queens to be closer to the work because earlier I had uh, I was in Staten Island and I was just too far away. There are I mean, like, lots and lots of um, memories, but I think what I'm really happy to see is the people that I met way back in 2004 are still in contact. Like, I recently ran into a Nepali woman and, and at, an, at an event, and we were reminiscing about those early days when we were like you know, she was working at a restaurant and she was one of my muses, really, like where she would share all her like you know stories. Like she didn't, have, she didn't have to do that, but she trusted me somehow and she shared, opened her life to me and sort of helped me think about what was happening in the community and what needed, what were some of the possible solutions, and we spoke a lot. And, and that she still remembered remembered those days, and that I and that was really nice. And there's just been so much that's happened in the last eleven years. Um, I think um, I, I don't think there is like one or two I can pick really, like in terms of work. Um, but. But I think, like, on the personal side, I think having, living half a block from you guys, mm-hmm. you know, um, and having friends uh, around that I can just walk in and share, that's also been another sort of, like, now, I think, in a way, like, recreating my home in Kathmandu, like, where there's, like, a almost like a cocoon of... Uh, support system within a much larger metropolis and I think I'm being able to recreate that here sometimes New York feels too much and we're like why are we here especially in winter we're like why are we here (laughs) but um, then I look around and have you guys around and think that this is home Mm -hmm. so to me Home is where I am. <laughs> as a, I worked as a consultant for many years, and uh, as a consultant, I actually travel a lot, and sometimes I leave on Monday and I come back on Thursday. During that period, my home is really just a suitcase. At one time, I kind of just thought, it doesn't take a lot to to live, actually. <laughs> so So... Yeah, so so that you you have that suitcase, and at at one point it was uh, was very funny. I um, the hotel staff would greet me on Mondays, <laughs> saying "Welcome home." So on weekends when I come back to New York, it's like on vacation. <laughs> and then the other thing is, uh, I, I remember uh, me and uh, my friends were talking about things. I have a like a minivan. I drove to different places. So one time I think I was 
driving with my friend to uh, outside of New York, and she commented, says, this is like a moving home. <laughs> so I, I agree with her. So sometimes if I travel like to faraway places in my van, that I feel like that's my home. <laughs> so to me, it's, it's where I am when I go back to China, visit, and that's my home. When I'm here, this is my home. Yeah. Thank you for listening with us on the Queen's Memory Podcast. Visit our show notes blog at queensmemory.org. There you'll find full transcripts and written translations of this episode, and more to listen to from our archives. We've also added reading recommendations from Queen's Public Library's collections, as well as resources from local community organizations. And if you want your stories to join those you heard today and become part of our archives, head to queensmemory.org forward slash participate or to our show notes to find out more. I'd like to thank our producer, Adrian Lara, and our composer, Elias Raven. A warm thank you to Ro Garrido for providing fundamental collaboration and support, and to Richard Lee and Molly Schwartz for offering their guidance and wisdom. Thanks also to the Queen's Public Library and the Institute of Museum and Library Services for hosting and funding this podcast. Finally, thank you to all the interviewees, interviewers, interns, and volunteers for collecting and sharing the stories that make this podcast possible. If you're listening with others and want to reflect together, here are some guiding questions. Where have you lived before? What relationships do you have to those places? Listen with us in the seventh episode on traditions. Listen with us next time on the Queen's Memory Podcast. Podcast.